Episode 3 in a series of podcasts of the women's IP world. We started in Mexico, then traveled to Zimbabwe, and now we are in Spain. We are celebrating and shining the spotlight on women working in intellectual property law and innovation. I'm your host, Michelle Katz, and I'm the co-founding partner of the law firm Advitum IP, which in Latin means intellectual property for life, and we are based out of the U.S. in Chicago. Me and my firm are hosting this podcast on behalf of North Ends Media PR and Marketing Limited, based out of the UK, in London. They are the publishers of the Women's IP World Annual and the Global IP Matrix Magazine. In today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking with Ms. Isabel Bandin Barrero. She works with the law firm Gomez Acebo and Pombo. Welcome, Isabel. I'm so glad that you're able to join us today. Hello, Michelle. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we are very happy to have you here. And we're going to be talking about a recent article that you published in the women's IP world um, in the annual. And it's entitled IP Considerations of Augmented and Virtual Reality. Now, I think a lot of people know what virtual reality is already, but can you tell us about augmented reality? Yeah, sure. Happy to. This is a, a, indeed a very common and very popular questions where I'm talking about these topics. Um, as you say, virtual reality is more popular and it's basically a computer-generated environment with scenes and objects that appear to be real and that makes uh, us to feel immersed in our surroundings. But for this virtual reality experience, we need an external device, for example, a virtual reality headset or a helmet. But on the other hand, we also have another similar technology, which is the augmented reality. And uh, this technology only adds digital elements to a live view. And just by using, for example, your smartphone, I'm going to give you a, a very easy example. The clearest and I think the most mainstream example of this augmented reality is Pokemon Go. If you remember a couple of years ago in 2016, I believe, um, suddenly people went crazy for Pokemon Go and millions of people were traveling to public spaces to catch and um, fight with little monsters that they only saw in their smartphones. Well, that is augmented reality. That was like the most popular case and the first approach to a lot of people to this reality. I remember it. I actually remember it very well because... I would go outside to make sure my kids didn't end up in the traffic while they were looking for <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, I mean, there were a lot of people that loved it, of course, but there mm -hmm. were also um, other people who were, whose private property was invaded by dozens and hundreds of Pokemon Go <laughs> players, so they hated it. But for us lawyers, I believe that um, it was very interesting because the first time I saw it, I, I just think, you know, how many potential legal questions we have here. 
And, and yeah, that's basically what my article is about. Yeah, so I found it really interesting because, you know, with augmented, then you, you don't need any goggles like you would need um, with virtual reality, like like with the Oculus yes, um, exactly. as an example, which mm-hmm. really got us through certain aspects, a certain time period during the pandemic, because when it was cold and, you know, we needed to get the kids exercise, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like just the cabin fever can get extreme in Chicago during the long winter months. So we actually got an Oculus so they could see, and I and I have tried it, um, and they do have adult type videos for um, exercising and things like that. It's not just games. So with virtual reality then being for everyone, um, do you think that the pandemic in, increased or led to increased sales? Sure, definitely. I mean, I think that these both uh, augmented reality and virtual reality are emerging technologies, but definitely COVID-19 has boosted them. I mean, we are all trying and we are all learning to live our lives virtually due to the pandemic. We socialize in a different way. We work in a different way. You know, like video chat, for example, has become like the staple for team meetings and for drinks with friends. And now we will do that on, for example, virtual reality experience. Um, So, yeah, I think that uh, this would definitely will imply a shift that somehow could mean big things for these industries. And right now the market um, is crying out for more built-to-air experience. For example, here in Spain, we have uh, one of our most popular museums is the Prado Museum. Of course, Mm -hmm. due to the um, pandemic, uh, people were not allowed to visit the museum because every day they have hundreds and millions of people that visit uh, the museum. But they have just created the first virtual experience. So you basically can see the museum from your sofa. And apparently has been like really successful um, um, during March from last year, that was the first month of the pandemic, um, they received more uh, visitors than in a normal day pre-pandemic. So yeah, I definitely think that this will be um, a major change for some corporations. And not only museums, I mean, the the type of applications are just unlimited. You can use it in entertainment, you can use it in advertising, um, also in the healthcare system. There is a lot of um, hospitals, for example, here in Spain, they did the first um, operation with a virtual heart, which basically means that the surgeon that was going that was doing um, uh, an operation on the heart, uh, put on the Oculus Quest glasses. So everybody, all the doctors around the world could, could see directly through his eyes in this groundbreaking operation. And also all the students that were there, they have like a first, uh, first vision directly on the patients. So I think that it's just really interesting. That's fascinating. And that takes your education to a whole new level. Yes, sure. To be able to see a surgery like that through the surgeon's eyes. Yeah. That's really incredible. And, you know, even on the entertainment side, the Prado Museum, for example, what are are they? Are they charging admission? 
Um, well, at the beginning, they did it for free to try mm -hmm. to encourage people um, to, you know, keep somehow connected to the museum. I don't know if nowadays they are they are charging, but I'm positive that the Louvre Museum in Paris also have a virtual reality experience around the Mona Lisa, and they charge for that. So that's um, another um, possibility. It depends on the corporation. Uh, but also, for example, I'm thinking about um, another possibility. Um, the other day, I went with one of my friends and he wanted to buy a car. And there are a lot of uh, companies that are now offering a virtual trying your new bespoke car, which basically means that uh, you put on your, your headset and you are able to digitally uh, bespoke your new car and you see it right directly in your eyes and you say, okay, I want to pick, uh, you know, this type of windows or I want this internal color. No, strike that. I want the other color. And you see it before it's manufactured. So I thought it was really another, another cool type of application um, to this kind of experience. Truly. And that the idea that, well, you can customize your experience, you can enhance your experience, and you can experience things that pre-pandemic you never would have even sought out yes. is, is pretty incredible. Uh, and I, I, I do wonder, I asked about the economic component, because even here in Chicago, there were museums who were offering tours, virtual tours, uh, no, no glasses needed, just, you know, through a link on whatever screen you had, whether television, your phone, what have you. And it was all for free. And that was to keep, keep people connected. But at some point, if it becomes more of our norm, right, then they need to survive also financially um, beyond probably donations, I, I would think. So I feel like there's long-term questions that still need to be answered. Sure, sure. I think that today is still too early to assess how the world will come out of this pandemic and whether these new technologies will be considered part of a solution or part of a new ecosystems. But I'm quite confident that we will try to implement it in our daily life. We have planned this type of technologies um, in many ways. For example, there is a lot of people that told me that they, do, they don't know anything about augmented reality. And though, for example, they use Snapchat filters or IG filters uh, on their day-to-day -day, uh, lives. So that's an example of augmented reality. Oh, that's a great example. Great example, yes. because people use that all the time. <clears throat> Many people. Yes, and they sometimes they don't realize that that is that is specific technology. So I think that we just need a little bit more of information. And definitely COVID will will help with that. Yeah, and it sounds like it already has. Can you tell me what disruptive technologies are? Yes, well, basically are the technologies that are linked somehow with the 4.0 industry, you know. Um, today, we have smart fabrics, smart contracts, smart phones, smart everything. They're um, devices that are interconnected. Um, normally, when people talk about disruptive technologies, they make reference, for example, to blockchain or artificial intelligence, one of the most popular. Also, the use of drones, for example. And in this case, well, augmented and 
and virtual reality. And also another modifications, for example, the mixed reality, which is basically the combination of these two technologies and the extended reality, which is like the umbrella term that covers all of these kind of technologies and the ones that are still improving because these technologies are everyday changing. So that's, that's why they created this term of extended reality to don't um, left out any, any technology. So two examples of disruptive technologies then are virtual reality and augmented reality. Those are two, two examples, two, two kinds of disruptive technologies. Do, sure. do I understand that right? Sure, sure, okay. indeed. <laughs> but of course, there, there's others. Yes, yes, as I was saying, for example, like blockchain. Yeah, oh yeah, the extended reality and the mixed reality. And okay. also other technologies that are popular, for example, in the fintech area it's very popular blockchain and in other areas for example um, artificial intelligence is really big and for example the european union has been like really keen on trying to regulate or somehow create a legal framework uh, for these technologies but for the moment at least in spain and in the european union for virtual reality and augmented reality we don't have any specific legal framework well, <clears throat> with regard to the, the terminology, though, I found it really interesting that it's called disruptive because it's actually making our lives easier, isn't it? It's connecting us much easier, but yet it's called disruptive. Do you know why? Not really. I mean, I think it's just because they somehow uh, represent a breakthrough in history. You know, um, years ago, Internet was a disruptive technology because internet change our lives in so many ways. I mean, we can't just imagine our lives without internet. And I think that these technologies will represent that in the near future. They are changing so much our reality that um, today and maybe in 10 years, uh, blockchain, artificial intelligence, virtual reality will be part of our daily life as is the internet. So maybe that's why they call it disruptive. Right. So it's it's disruptive, meaning it's it's actually changed our lives where we're relying on it like we are with the Internet on a daily basis. Sure. Makes a lot it of makes sense. sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. So let's get into your article. Um, I would like to know and our audience would like to know what are the main IP considerations when we're talking about augmented and virtual reality? Well, um, there are a lot of considerations that um, creators and companies and brands need to be aware of when they are using these technologies in their projects. Um, for example, I mentioned just a couple of them in my article, but the list uh, can go on and on. For example, um, one of the main problems that we heard from our clients is uh, the one that comes from inserting intellectual property rights of the real world into the virtual world. Because when we want to create like a realistic virtual experience, we have to inspire such virtuality in the real world. So in that process of virtualizations, um, we usually, or not we, but the virtual and augmented reality developers usually um, reproduce assets that are protected uh, by intellectual property rights. So there is a lot of problems in that regard and companies need to be proactive to monitor the content that they include in that environment and verify that they comply with all the traditional intellectual property laws. 
And on the other hand, we also have the virtual creations that you have created originally in the virtual world, and then you shift that creations to the real world. For example, this is like um, really popular nowadays with the fashion industry and the luxury industry. They created virtual collections that are um, introducing, for example, in video games. So that collection does not exist in the real world, only in the virtual world. But during the game or during the video game, people get to know these collections. They are very keen on uh, these collections, so they want to somehow try to buy it. So once we shift that virtual intellectual property rights to the real world, we need to make sure that we are the true owners of that uh, in virtual creations. And this seems really easy, but in practice, um, it has rained quite a lot of questions. For example, it is the creator, the brand, who commissioned that creation, that fashion, for example, line? Or is it the virtual reality developer that actually created and developed that virtual asset? If you don't have a contract with your service providers, um, that can uh, imply a lot of legal problems um, from that regard. So it's it's important to duly allocate the the rights change and also the liability regime. It's it's very important. When I was reading your article, I was really interested in some of the case studies that you're talking about with regard to the trademark rights of um, certain brands that are contained within the game. And I was surprised, actually, on the results um, that it was not in favor of the brand owner. Um, it, and I, it makes me wonder uh, whether the, the deciding body in, in those cases have actually ever played these games. Because, you know, I know with, uh, with my kids, they want the video game bucks you know, <laughs> for example, there for Roblox, there's Robux and you actually are buying. I mean, you have to spend a certain amount of money to have essentially monopoly money for like our generation to play within the game, to buy various weapons, but also to buy the skins like the avatar, how your how your character looks. So I, I, I will be very curious to see if the current decisions, um, wh whether those may change in the future and actually be found in favor of the brand owner. Sure. I, I thought the same question the first time that I saw this um, NCSoft resolution. Um, although I'm not an expert on US law, um, the background, it's, it's very similar, so we can truly understand it. Um, in Spain, on the on the other side, we don't have any case law regarding trademark rights nor copyright, any kind of copyright infringement. So we are really keen on seeing how the courts, the Spanish courts, are going to react. And for example, in a similar case as the one that you are pointing out, the Marvel superheroes, how they would uh, react. Because, yeah, we were also very... Um, uh, very surprised to see the the outcome of the resolution. The use of the Marvel superhero uh, by players within the game was not or appeared to be not an infringing use, but uh, 
uh, prospects for a successful claim improve if the designer or the developer would generate merchandising, including a real world sign in the virtual world and sell it uh, for a real or virtual currency, as it happens to another cases. So we will have to see how, how they interpret that in this side of the Atlantic. That's, that's the interesting part of this kind of technologies that um, at the moment we have more questions than answers. Um, so that is why, for example, in Spain, they are starting um, some soft law mechanisms, you know, like best practice recommendations and code of conducts. Um, our law firm um, drafted and published a legal guide on the use of augmented reality and virtual reality in advertising last year. It was the first in last year. No, sorry, this February, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, we drafted it during 2020. But it was the first uh, legal guide in Spain, and it was very well received by the uh, some peers because we don't have any kind of guidance to how to apply this traditional legislation to these changing technologies. So I think it's important that we start moving, for example, with this soft law mechanism, because for the time being, at least in Spain, there is no hard law uh, developments of any kind. Well, it's truly exciting. And there's more packed into this two-page article on augmented and virtual reality and and the IP considerations related to this type of disruptive technologies. Thank you very much. And I think the audience will be really interested um, either reading the hard copy or uh, the audio format, which can be found at www.womensipworld.com. Again, that's www.womensipworld.com. We're going to keep talking, but for now, we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue this discussion in a moment. The Women's IP World Annual is the industry's first intellectual property law magazine that celebrates professional women working in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. We are very proud to provide a profile platform for women working in intellectual property and innovation by shining a spotlight on their expertise and professional knowledge in their respective fields of operation in IP through engaging thought leadership content. Our annual publication has caught the eye of many IP associations from all over the world. More importantly, it has attracted a cocktail of awe-inspiring, knowledgeable women who are happy to share their professional and personal experiences of working in the industry. If you would like to be part of the Women's IP World Annual, we would love to shine a light on your professional industry experience. You can contact us on plus four four zero two zero three eight one three zero four five seven or email us at info at womensipworld.com. Make sure to check out the latest issue of the Women's IP World Annual at www.womensipworld.com. The Women's IP World Annual. We are celebrating women in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. Okay, Isabel, we are back. And uh, I had told you uh, prior to the podcast that I read your article first and was so curious as to how you chose this topic until I read your bio right afterwards. And then things <laughs> filled in. Um, we definitely want to learn more about you and your background. I know that you got um, a degree from uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. in law development and diplomacy, then went back to Spain, collected some degrees there, have all these certificates, 
including privacy, data protection, and cybersecurity. And also you're certified um, by the Blockchain Intelligence Institute and an expert in blockchain, smart contracts, tokenization, and crypto actives. Did I get all that right? <laughs> yes, that was perfect. Uh, great introduction. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> so clearly, um, you don't you don't steer uh, clear of anything digital or innovation related. In fact, you're actually drawn to it. Yes, yes, indeed. I'm I'm passionate about. Um, at the early stage of my career, um, I was very keen always on intellectual property, like traditional intellectual property, like copyright and trademarks, train names, advertising. Um, but last years, I have been focusing very much on these new emerging technologies and all the things that um, somehow are related to the digital platforms and the digital world, the innovation in a broad sense of the world. Um, and it's it's really my passion to to help others create these projects um, from a correct legal point of view. Um, I'm not that creative, um, so I have to always work uh, with engineers or with other clients that have like these creative ideas, and I try to help them and shape them in the correct uh, form. That's what we do, right? As IP lawyers, we're working with creatives. I mean, we certainly come up with creative solutions to our clients' problems or um, to reach their business goals. But I understand what you're saying, that the creation of the work itself is done by these other people and we are along to assist them. Sure, but you know, today lawyers and engineers don't have to be that much separated as they were um, in the past years. There are a lot of gray areas. For example, in blockchain, um, you need to have like a very technical background to try to understand how these technologies work. And only if you understand how they work, you will be able to duly provide advice, legal advice uh, on the use of that technologies, what they could imply, what are the legal risks, how you can mitigate them. So I think that there are some blue lines um, that are... Um, more gray each day. Uh, lawyers have to become a little bit more technical, more digital. And on the other hand, like engineers and creators and developers and any other like technical professions also need to take us into account. I think that law firms, at least in the US, are considered one of the last group groups or industries to change. When um, I think back to all the paper we used to go through and there were other industries that surpassed us um, much, much quicker and their digital acumen and law firms, uh, at least here, the reputation was we're one of the last. Do you think that that's and I don't, one? I don't know if that's the same in Spain for for the idea of what a law firm is like. And two, um, if it has, are, are law firms catching up? Are they, are they actually keeping up with the rest of the industries um, in, in digital um, capabilities and innovation? Um, sure. I mean, I agree that law firms are traditionally like 
less digital than, for example, technology companies. But I have to say that um, Gomez Acebo has always surprised me because they were like really keen on technology. We have a very active um, a chief innovation officer. So that's really helpful, um, not only with our clients, but internally on how we operate on a day-to-day basis. And also, I believe that our digital team, it's really, really active. So that that's a good thing. Uh, we have to spread, you know, that culture, digital culture throughout uh, the firm. And um, and I think this is maybe the only good part of the pandemic that people have now tried uh, the digital version, the virtual version, everything, and they see that it works really well. It, it's very efficient. Um, we can gain a lot of time. We can, um, you know, um, also try to be more efficient on the economic side. So I think that's the only good part of the pandemic if we have to be positive about something. Um, right. It, it's basically thrust law firms through need um, yes. to become more digitally capable more sure. virtually capable. Yes, we're seeing that all over the world across our law firms uh, that we connect with. And speaking of, you know, typically our connections were with uh, through through conferences. So now that we're we're attending virtual conferences, uh, those of us who are signing up for them, or we're talking with our associates around the world via Zoom or other platforms. How are you seeing, if, if you're seeing it yet, and if not, do you think we will see the virtual reality and augmented reality hit organizations like INTA um, or the other global intellectual property uh, comp, you know, organizations to connect us and to really offer even more value with their membership rate? Yes, I, I do think so. I mean, I, I really hope so. And I also think it that, um, for example, I was invited a couple of um, a couple of weeks ago to a convention in Dubai where you were not only invited in a virtual traditional way, you know, you connect through your um, platform, through platform or whatever other service that you were using. But we were able to create our own virtual reality avatar and we <laughs> were able, yeah, it was, it was actually really interesting because you, you have the, the ability, for example, to show everyone in real time experience, uh, for example, uh, a, a piece of, uh, of a device that we were trying to analyze from a legal point of view and everybody can see it in a 3D way. So it really improved the, the um, well, improved the meeting and improved also the experience. You know, you are immersed in this technology. So I think that that's the next point. You know, we have passed from the telephone conversation. We are now in the chat conversation, video chat conversation. But the next point is definitely the use of these of these technologies. I don't know how long it will take us to adapt. But probably, as I was saying before, the pandemic will help us um, because a lot of companies have already tried, have seen the benefits, and they will eventually would like to to include them. Yes, it does seem like the pandemic is the catalyst for a lot of these things. And, you know, we're, we're living sci-fi, right? The, <laughs> the sci-fi movies from decades ago. Um, you know, and who knows if we fast forward a bit, if Zoom is going to be laughed at like, 
like the flip phone now. <laughs> uh, it will be really interesting to see. And Isabel, I fully expect that you will be leading the charge and uh, apprising us of the newest developments as as they arise. <laughs> of course, you can count me in always. <laughs> Thank you so much, Isabel, for your time. Thank you for participating in today's podcast. It's been a true pleasure to have you on the show. To our listeners, please like, follow, share with your friends and colleagues, but also feel free to send comments and questions. Until we connect in person, take good care, everyone. The Women's, Women's IP World. You have been listening to the Women's IP World Annual Podcast, hosted by Michelle Katz from Advitum IP in Chicago, on behalf of Northern's Media PR and Marketing Limited.